This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a market update and outlook. My guest is Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison. It's a mixed day on Wall Street, or at least it was when last I looked. The Dow Industrials are riding high again, as they have been for recent weeks, but the NASDAQ Composite was in the red. I have a lot of questions about this market, Ben, and I am very glad you're here to answer them. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, Lauren. I'll see how right. kind of answers I can come up with. I am not discouraged. I am going to forge ahead. So I'm going to begin with this past weekend's trader column written by our colleague Jacob Sonnenschein. And Jacob noted that Wall Street strategists have been lifting their S&P 500 forecasts for mid-2024. People tend to do things in six-month increments or one-year increments. And in some cases, those targets are as high as 5,000 on the S&P. Yet as soon as the strategists began to lift their targets, it seems the index began to weaken. So the S&P was down more than 2% last week. And I am wondering how you read this sudden softness in the market versus this fairly sudden rush to raise price targets. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty simple, um, really, is that, uh, you know, the price targets are are a coincident indicator at best. They follow the market and at worst, they're a lagging indicator. Um, the strategists are responding to what the market's already done and raising their targets accordingly. Um, it's part of this whole, uh, you know, it's called a capitulation trade um, that I think helped drive the last uh, leg of this uh, kind of uh, run that we've had this year, um, where it basically became very hard to be bearish. Um, so uh, we do, we did it here at Barron's uh, a couple of months ago, um, and you've seen others uh, like the, the Wall Street strategists have been doing the same thing. And I assume that there are a lot of people who have money at work who are also doing that by covering their shorts or finally getting long if they uh, were holding out for the next next leg lower. And, you know, the way the market works is you have to be in front of all these things. And uh, and when uh, usually when all that the last of that happens, um, you know, you do get a pullback because the market has to digest it all. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing is that uh, we had all these uh, strategists come in, they raised their targets. On the other side of it, you, you also saw in the economic side, you saw, um, you know, banks pulling their recession forecasts that they had. And, you know, all this was, I think, just in response to a market that's been strong. And now people are saying, OK, what have you done for me lately? So are we to assume from that that the market is now going to head lower now that the strategists have capitulated? I don't think it, it has to. I mean, we've, we've had the we've, we've had a decent down move now. Um, we're also seeing a, a rotation in the market. And this is where it's going to get interesting because, um, you know, as you noted, the, the Dow is up. A lot uh, today. It's up uh, over one percent last I checked, and the Nasdaq was basically flat. Um, and you know, for the S P five hundred, that's meant a zero point six percent rise. But it really does feel like the big tech stocks that 
were driving so much. You know, we were talking about the big seven and how they were responsible for all the market's gains. Well, guess what? Now we've had this widening of breadth. We're seeing other stocks, uh, in particular some of the cyclicals, uh, do a lot better now. Um, there are a lot more stocks doing better, uh, but they're not the big ones. And that makes it harder for the index, uh, for you know, the NASDAQ to go up, certainly. And it means that the S&P's gains are probably more muted from here. Um, but the market needed a break. I not, would not be surprised if it takes a break for a little while longer. Um, August is often a seasonally weak time of the year. Um, and so you have to let that kind of play out. Um, but I also think it does mean that, uh, you know, you pick your spots and you do get some buying opportunities. So strategists have been talking a lot about positive micro factors affecting stocks as opposed to macro factors. And I'm hoping you can explain for our listeners the difference between micro and macro in this context. It sounds like a lot of market jargon to me. Oh, it is a lot of market yes. jargon, which, as you know, Lauren, is some of my favorite stuff in the, in the <laughs> world. I mean, basically, what you, you know, when you look at the stock market, most of the time, when you look at individual stocks and trying to figure out what drives them, a lot of the time they're they're moving with the, the stock market. There's always a high correlation with the stock market. If the market's going up, there's a good chance that an individual stock is going up. If the market's falling, the opposite is true. Um, but how much of that is being driven by the so-called macro forces, such as, you know, it would be things like the economic news or what the Fed is doing or, um, you know, geopolitical kind of things, but where the whole market is moving in lockstep together. Um, that's going to that's going to fluctuate. There are going to be times like, uh, you know, if you remember the beginnings of COVID where everything moved together down and then up. Um, that's one where there's a high macro concentration. It's big, um, it's big news that's affecting everything. But then you get to markets where that kind of stuff doesn't matter as much. Um, and you know, where the economic data, you, you're getting those releases, they're not doing all that much to the market. Instead, investors are focusing on the fundamentals of the specific companies. And Goldman Sachs actually had a stat for this. Um, when they said that uh, the micro factors actually explain 71% of stock moves this year. Um, and at the, a year ago, that would have been 41%. So we've moved from this market where people were much more focused on the macro, on these big issues affecting the globe, to, to the issues affecting companies individually. And that's actually been great for things like stock picking. Um, and it's also been good for the market itself because what you're getting is just the idiosyncrasies are flowing through the market and the companies, there are companies that uh, have good news, bad news. They might cancel each other out, but you're getting more good news than bad news. And that allows the market to go higher. Makes it easier for active stock pickers, I would think. It should if they're picking the right ones. Right, right. Good caveat. So now let's turn to the bond market where the yield on the 10-year treasury has once again topped 4%. What is the bond market telling us this time around? And what are the implications for stocks of this sort of tick up in rates? Well, it's, it, the, the bond market is telling us that the U.S. Treasury has a lot of debt to issue. Um, you know, there's a, focus, a, a lot of focus last week on the, the Fitch downgrade. Um, and uh, if Fitch, um, sorry, we didn't actually, this was on Tuesday, so we didn't actually cover our Monday call, did we? Um, no, you know, Fitch no. downgraded the U.S. credit rating um, from AAA to uh, double B, uh, double A plus, uh, double B plus would have been bad. Um, and it was something they warned that they were going to do. And 
you know, part of it had to do with the politics, but really they just said that the U.S. Uh, um, our, our, our debt position is getting worse. Um, we have a lot of debt and um, it's growing and we're not really being fiscally responsible. Um, it, the, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, there wasn't really a reaction from the market to that uh, until the, the Treasury announced that they were going to actually need to issue more bonds than had been originally planned. Um, and that's when you sort of got this spike in bond yields. Um, and, and really, it's a supply issue right now. I think it reinforces Fitch's long-term view. But I think mainly what's happening is that the, the U.S. Treasury has a ton of bonds to issue. And people are trying to figure, the market's trying to figure out, well, how much are they going to have to, how much yield are they going to have to pay to get it all done? Um, and so you're getting this, this rise in yields. We are coming close to the highest levels that we've had um, in a while. Um, and, you know, people are worried, you know, that the, the market technicians are, um, are, are looking at, at levels and, you know, they're a little bit worried that you get a breakout though. One of the guys that I've been interviewing for years, a guy named Ian Lynchon, uh, I think he's over at BMO now, but, um, you know, he's, he's someone that has been watching bonds for a long time. He calls it a, he sees it's really just a summer sell-off. Um, it's about this refunding that's going on and, he just thinks that there needs to be, uh, you, know, you have to get through this, these auctions, uh, of, of these treasury auctions to really get past that issue. And then you need to get this, uh, we'll talk about more later, but the uh, um, consumer price uh, uh, inflation, the CPI number is coming out on, um, on, on Thursday. And that's also gonna be something that's gonna be sort of weighing on the market. Nobody really wants to get in front of that. Um, it, the, the issue for stocks is that, you know, stocks are not cheap. Um, they Not were by trading, any they're trading about 19.2 times earnings. Um, and that is, um, you know, the, the, the 10 year average. So we're already this 10 year last 10 years has not been a year, a, a period of cheap stocks, but the average for the last 10 years has been about 17.8. Um, and so we're above that average. Um, we're above where we were at the beginning of the year. Um, the reason this matters is because, you know, people talk about the equity risk premium is how much, um, how much of a premium do you get over investing in treasuries? Um, so you basically, uh, you know, you flip that, you do one divided by that PE ratio and you get about 5.2% as your um, earnings yield. And that's below the 10 year average of 5.76%. Um, but then you have this treasury yield that has gone up a lot. And so you subtract it, you get just about a, an equity risk premium of a little over one percentage point. And that's way down from the 10-year average of three and a half percentage points. So this is just a long, number-heavy way of saying that you're not getting a lot of extra return for investing in stocks right here, uh, right here relative to the bond market. And that has to be worrisome to, um, you know, if you have a long-term point of view on the stock market, that has to be pretty worrisome. As you said, stocks are not cheap. They are not cheap at all. So let's move on to talk about CPI. The big economic news last week was the July jobs report. The labor market is cooling, but inflation remains well above the Fed's 2% target, as we know. And many economists now expect the consumer price index to show a rise in inflation for July because it is anniversary-ing. That's a strange word. Yes. Um, trends of a year ago. So CPI will be reported on Thursday. How goes the Fed's fight against inflation in your view? No, for now, it's it's going, I think, okay. 
Um, you know, it's uh, we would love to see it. Uh, you know, everyone wants to see it hit that target uh, ASAP, but it's a process. You don't go up to 9% and then come right back down uh, to two. Um, as you said, um, CPI is going to go up a little bit. Um, it's looking at a 3.3% uh, year over year rate, which would be up from 3%. On a month-over-month -month, uh, basis, though, it's 0.2%, and that's unchanged. So it looks like we're sort of locked into this kind of 0.2% month-over-month. And that's actually the same thing that's happening with uh, a core CPI, which strips out the food and energy. That's going to rise, or is supposed to rise 0.2% um, in, in July, um, while the year-over-year -year rate is going to stay steady at 4.8%. Um, and so for, the, for anyone who has been... You know, predicating their, their, you know, their uh, reason for being bullish on um, CPI falling, they're gonna, that's gonna be tested um, on Thursday um, because it's, it's probably not gonna drop again. Um, but I, I think a lot will depend on how people respond to the month over month numbers um, because that's gonna tell us, you know, how steady the rate is. And we're also, you know, people are, are, are still focusing on uh, from the payrolls uh, number that we had last week, just on, on, on wages and what's happening there um, and how much that's impacting inflation. So there's gonna be a lot to watch. We have to remember also that, you know, as much as the market is focusing on CPI, that's not the Fed's measure. The Fed uses the PCE. Um, the right. PCE is actually a little bit lower. Um, but uh, it's this is going to be the market moving event of the week, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see how um, how everybody responds to it, and particularly in bond deals. I think that's where it, that watching bond deals will determine how things go. If they do break out to the upside, the stock market could have a pretty big problem. So we'll be covering that Thursday, of course. We'll be looking at the number and we'll be looking at the market reaction. So let's move on to second quarter earnings, which are finally winding down. How would you size up the collective results so far? They've been pretty decent. Um, the overall um, drop in earnings this quarter is going to be smaller than it was expected to be uh, heading into it. So, you know, companies always are predicting better than expected earnings. We know that. 75% um, of the companies that have reported so far have beat their numbers and they're beating by about 7.2%. And so if you extrapolate that out for the rest of the quarter, and there's not that many more to come, mainly, you know, a bunch of retailers um, in the next uh, next week and, you know, a few others, um, you get uh, an overall drop of about 2.3%. And that's, I think we have, we're expecting about 6% at the beginning of the quarter. Um, so th this is, uh, you know, a better than expected quarter. What's very interesting about it is that companies aren't really being rewarded all that well for uh, for beating. Um, and so Credit Suisse looked at this and they found that, you know, companies that beat on both revenue and EPS and earnings um, are outperforming the market by just 1%. Um, and that's averaged about 1.7%. So pretty big discrepancy there. And the ones that are missing on both are still underperforming by a lot, 2.8% uh, um, on average, and that's versus a historical average of a loss of 3.1%. Um, and so the, the earnings have been good, but the, the response to them has not been fantastic. And I think that's just because you know, you have all these stocks that have been gaining into earnings that, you know, it, um, you have to do more than just beat. Uh, you have to offer the you know, forward-looking commentary that it's going to make people think that the beats can keep coming. And I think a good example of this was what we saw with Apple last week. Um, right. You know, it did beat earnings, but it dropped uh, 5% and it's dropping again uh, today because, uh, you know, it was okay, but not when you're up as much as Apple is. 
Well, when stocks are expensive, the expectations are very high. Yep. And you have to not only meet them, but exceed them. Right. You have to convince people that the growth is going to be coming and for a company like Apple, that, that people don't really see it right now. Right. Well, we'll get back to that later. I think we have some listener questions about that. So let's look at some of the big companies reporting this week. We'll start with Walt Disney, which was the subject of a bullish Barron's cover story two weeks ago. The House of Mouses, they call it, has its work cut out. The stock is down sharply. As we know, the dividend was suspended. But our reporter, Nick Jasinski, argues that there are a lot of ways Disney could turn things around. So tell us what the later, what the latest quarter is likely to look like and what that could mean for the future of Disney. Well, Disney, it's, it's had a tough time. It's down, uh, it's down 14% during the past three months. Uh, earnings are going to slip a little bit to 98 cents from $1.09, even though sales are going up to about $23.5 billion, and that would be from $21.8 billion. Um, so again, that shows you right there when you have earnings falling, but sales rising, you know that there's some cost pressures uh, happening. The, the big thing going on with Disney right now, you know, we know what's happening with the, um, their streaming and how that's been expensive. And we know that their cable channels are under pressure. One of the things that have been buoying the company has been their uh, parks. And right now there's even fear about the, uh, about the Disney parks business, um, that Disney World uh, is just not going to be able to uh, meet the numbers that people are um, expecting of it. Part of this has to do with the story that the Wall Street Journal had pointing to wait times uh, having dropped. And um, there's even uh, been some focus on uh the taxable rates in Florida being down uh, at hotels and that being a negative sign. Um, I was, I was reading a note though, that was saying that, you know what, parks are probably going to hold up better than people think. Um, they actually looked at um, some other uh, data such as uh, how many people are traveling into Orlando um, and, uh, and some other trends and uh, they're actually feeling good about it. And so I think there's a lot of, worry here. There's a lot of bad news, I think, expected. And if Disney can report anything that looks like a little bit better, um, that maybe we're coming to an inflection point, the stock will be okay. There's also going to be an investor day coming up in September that investors are looking ahead to as well. So there's going to be a lot of moving parts with this. But uh, we're hoping that, uh, you know, the stock has that a lot of the bad news is already out there and the stock will be able to head up from here. All right. That sounds good. It was a very good story that Nick wrote. So sticking with the theme of entertainment, let's look at Paramount, which reports later today. The company has also had its share of troubles, not quite like Disney, I suppose. Different. 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 Or the same, actually. They, I mean, they had the same uh, uh, streaming versus cable kind of issues that Disney has. All right. So what's ahead for Paramount? What do you expect the company to report? Well, you know, again, everyone's going to be focusing for them on they they don't really have much to look at besides this streaming uh, cable thing that's going on is like, can they keep streaming growing, but keep the cost in check enough? And can they keep cable from shrinking too quickly? Um, if that happens, you know, digital won't have the time to to make it all up. People want to hear how these uh, higher um, Paramount Plus is they're offering a lot of different uh, tiers. So they want to know how the higher priced ad free options are doing versus the lower price services that don't have ads. Um, and they they're going to be so they're going to be watching these things again. There are a lot of people that feel like this stock has been hit hard enough. 
Um, it is down 7.3% in the past uh, three months, down 7.4% this year. It's really gotten hit hard. Um, it's been the range bound really for a while now. After that big drop, it's been bouncing around. Um, and so there too, it's going to be a question of can they offset, uh, it, it, can they grow fast enough in digital to offset the losses over in cable? at sales there and other things they can do to improve things but streaming is the issue as you know yeah. so let's take a look now at ups like fedex ups is often considered a bellwether for the economy things got a little bit confusing this summer because the company narrowly avoided a strike and the consequence of avoiding it i suppose is that they struck a contract with the teamsters that favors the union what are the implications for UPS's latest quarter and for coming months and years? Well, they almost certainly are going to have to um, lower their guidance. Um, the uh, They're raising wages by about 6%. Um, that's going to mean uh, about $2 billion in additional expenses, which uh, at least one analyst I read thinks is higher than what investors were expecting, uh, quite a bit higher. Um, and so the, the guidance for 2023 likely has to come down. Um, the, the, the good news is that the, the longer term, it's actually not as bad. Um, it, the, the hit, I guess, happens uh, very quickly and then um, it, it doesn't hurt quite as much in the future. Uh, but that's really where the focus is going to be. Um, UPS, it, it's an interesting one because uh, it hasn't done much. It's uh, it's gained 3% in the past three months. It's up 4.1% uh, this year. So it's underperformed, but it's not down. Um, there, I think it has to get through these uh, the wages first. I would be reluctant to, to buy it into earnings because I just think that there is going to be uh, some reductions in guidance and things like that, as this analyst was saying. And you got to get through that all first before it really becomes a great stock to buy. Um, so I th I'd be a little reluctant, a little hesitant heading into these uh, to these earnings, um, just because these costs are, are going to be so much higher. I wonder if the company is a bellwether in the labor market as well as the economy. Um, I, I mean, I think it's dealing with things that uh, all companies are. I mean, this is not... Yeah a new issue it just happens to be the time that the contracts come up uh, i suspect um and so we're going to secure more of it also with um the the automakers uh, mm -hmm. have their own contracts coming up um and possible strikes there with the auto workers unions uh al root um has, has been i mean he, he's much more bullish than i am generally he's just a more optimistic person um <laughs> and, and he was you know he was pretty optimistic on ups when this deal was announced he just thinks that uh you know, analysts are pretty good at figuring out what these numbers are going to be and adjusting numbers and that everything's be fine. And he's pretty optimistic about the auto workers too, that uh, uh, it, it kind of all works out in the end. Um, so, uh, you know, you kind of have, I, a lot of the time I, I trust Al on this stuff. He has a pretty good feel for it. And he is an optimist and we love having him around. It's it's very true. It's it's good to have optimists on staff, especially when you're a stock yep. investor. Stocks, <laughs> stocks go up. Right, right, right. All right, two more before we get to listener questions. I want to talk about Eli Lilly for a minute. The company reports tomorrow. This has been a big winner this year. The stock is up 23%. It is a play on an Alzheimer's treatment and especially a play on obesity treatment. So 
What is the outlook for Lilly as it reports quarterly earnings? I mean, it's really all about the obesity treatment. Um, I, I want to share this stat with you because I, I think it's kind of amazing. So if I told you that their sales were going to come in at $7 billion, and now I'd be down from $7, $8 billion, would you expect that their earnings were going to rise to $1.98 a share from $1.25 a share? Uh, somewhere between no and hell no. I mean, that's, that's a pretty massive rise in earnings. And it's really yes. all because of these obesity drugs, which are just very, very profitable. And they're going to be the entire focus, I think, of um, uh, of, of the call. Of the the Alzheimer's drugs are a big deal, um, but they're not going to be making money yet. And so it's really on just, you know, how, how are these obesity drugs doing? From what we could tell, they're doing very well. How are they going to keep growing it? Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, that's, that's going to be it. Um, Jacob uh, Sonnenschein uh, wrote about it in the magazine this week in the trader column. And he's actually pretty optimistic in, um, on the stock. And it's, it's interesting. UBS basically says that they're the uh, only, uh, only pharma stock that they like right now. Um, and it's all because of these obesity drugs. And, you know, they also point out that everything else should be fine. Um, but it, it's really this thing that, that keeps the, the stock going. Okay. Last one, Alibaba. We know that Chinese stocks have had a lot of troubles over the years, a lot of skittishness about buying them. And you look at the stock chart and you want to weep. This thing has really come down probably about 70% from its peak. The company reports on Thursday. What's the outlook? Well, the outlook is for it to report uh, a profit of $2.03. Now it'd be up from $1.74 and sales are growing too. Um, so, so you have to like what you see there. Um, what, what I like about Alibaba here is, I, okay, I'm not an optimist. And I worry a lot about um, China and the relations between the U.S. and China and owning stocks in China where they're not being run for the benefit of shareholders, but for the benefit of the government. I think it's probably fair to say that, even though China might argue with it. Um, but at the same time, Alibaba trades for 11.2 times earnings, um, which just seems ridiculously low for a company that is growing. I mean, it's, it, it is um, China's Amazon.com. It has this self-help going on because it's going to break up where you're actually going to get a chance to see if the sum of the, how the sum of the parts works out, which I think will be a boon for it as well. And it's just cheap. Um, and at some point, I think uh, it just looks like, you know, if, if you worry about um, U.S. tech being too expensive, um, then you might, Alibaba might be a good alternative. Um, you know, Amazon did 52 times uh, after this big earnings jump it had this past week. Um, and, you know, maybe Alibaba is a decent alternative to that, or you can own them both. But I think it looks pretty decent heading into the earnings report. Mm -hmm. It certainly is depressed relative to where it had been. So good summary. We got a, a lot of questions today and some interesting ones. I'm going to put to you. I'll start with Larry. He notes that a 4% yield on a 10-year treasury looks high, but only compared to the lowest rates in history that is in 2020, when we had even negative rates. He notes that in 1981, when he started his investment career, the world demanded 16% in terms of bond yields. And many of the conditions that resulted in rates being so high then, like debt to GDP, excuse me, debt to GDP, are even worse now. So how can we have 
certain conditions so much worse and dealing with a bond yield that is so much less than the 16% of that high inflation era. Well, remember when the high inflation era, that was the culmination of really 10 years of um, uh, uh, maybe even more than 10 years of mistakes by the Fed. Um, the, the problem with inflation comes not when you get that first spike, but when you fail to uh, fail to get it down after that first spike, which is what happened uh, in the 70s, leading to that 16% um, uh, rate back in 81. Um, and, and so I, I think it remains to be seen um, whether we do end up with a repeat of that. It's certainly possible. I mean, if, uh, if the Fed uh, backs down before inflation is really under control, you could see it um, stay uh, high and for the Fed to have to do like a repeat of what Volcker did. Um, I hope we don't, we don't get there. Um, I think I think the, the current Fed chair, Jay Powell, is very, very conscious of not repeating that. I, I think so, too. Um, and, you know, so we have to, to see um, if uh, how, how this gets handled. Um, and that's partially why this CPI is so important. So I think you have to, um, you know, that's that's 10 years. Uh, that, that's a, a 10 year outlook. Uh, if the, the Fed makes a mistake is to get that kind of situation again. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, I, I do agree with your point that 4% is not a fantastic rate when, you know, CPI is still at 4.8%. Uh, um, you know, if uh, inflation comes down, that 4% might look great, but, uh, but you're absolutely right compared to inflation, it's not fantastic. Um, and uh, that's again, it's gonna, it's it's a lot more than we had uh, a few years ago, but it's not historically, you know, I think we're back getting into the normal historical ranges, but towards the low end um, of those. Whatever and, normal is these days. Well, anything, normal is anything that uh, happened before the financial crisis, I suspect. Right. <laughs> Something like that. That's our loose definition of normal. Yeah. Um, and but th but there's a lot that has to be worked out. I mean, we're I think we're going to be exp uh, th they're going to be um, a hangover from the ultra low rates that we've had as companies do have to return to a more normal, higher rate environment um, where, where cash isn't free and that uh, we're going to be seeing how that plays out over the next uh, few years. Um, and so I think it's going to be definitely interesting. I just don't think that it has to go to uh, 16 percent. Um, uh, that's not foreordained. I, I have this vision that Jay Powell has a bust of Volcker in his office and looks at it every day and says, I'm not going to do that, buddy. Yeah, or I, I hope it's Arthur Burns as well and saying, right. I'm not going to do that, buddy. <laughs> no, not at all for those of us who like Fed history. All right, next question we have from Ganapathy, who writes, I'm 74. Should I still be a 60-40 investor? I like the thrill of the stock market. Um, well, let me first about the thrill of the stock market. I don't think that's a good reason to invest um, in in stocks, um, or at least not when I want to do in the overall portfolio. One of the things that uh, I remember talking to a, a strategist at Barclays. Uh, this was a while ago now, about sixteen years ago. A guy named Aaron Gerwitz, who was uh, I think retired at this point, um, but he was telling me that uh, you know he'd like to to recommend to clients that they have a small part of their portfolio where they can trade and do all kinds of stuff because they like the thrill of the market. And that should be separate from their portfolio allocation um, that they are investing for the long term. 
going back to the 60 40 part of it is that i think a lot depends on uh, you know always you know we say talk about risk tolerance but people are living a lot longer today and so the old rule of like uh you know you put uh um yeah, you know, you do your 60-40 and that that will take care of things. You know, it might actually, you might need more stocks depending on how long you think you're going to live. A lot depends also on how much money you have. Um, do you have to make up because you didn't invest enough uh, earlier on? Or do you have a lot of money, which means you can take less risk? Um, and so a lot of it does come out to goals. I do think because we're living longer that you probably do need to have more money in stocks than you would have had, uh, say, 20 or 30 years ago. You just do need to take more risk at this point. But I like that notion, Ben, of, of removing from your retirement portfolio your thrill-seeking money. I, I mean, I've always struck me that that is just such a great way to think about it. You know, if you can compartmentalize like that, you just have over there, that's your asset allocation. You know, you let it do what it needs to do. And then you can have a small portion where it's, you know, you, you can trade it. You can do do what you want in terms of investing. And it doesn't have then it doesn't then impact uh, your long term goals. Right. Good point. All right, we have a question from Jack. Would short-term treasury notes and corporate bonds be a good buy at these levels? And how long should you park your money there? <laughs> God, <laughs> um, sorry, uh, this is such a tough one. Um, you know, right. with uh, actually going back to that, you know, example of, uh, you know, 1981, it's one where, you know, the, the short-term yields were, were higher but you wanted to invest in, in the longer term yields because everything was about to come down. Um, and so if you had gone into like a 30 year and you got to hold that for, uh, you know, the next 30 years, you uh, you were in a fantastic position. Whereas with the T-notes uh, or, or T, with T-bills, you had to roll them over. Um, you know, I, I think um, I just uh, I, I wish I, I think I wish I knew. Uh, I'll put it that way with the with Treasury notes, just because I think that we are at this point where it's it's very hard for me to get a feel uh, for whether it's going to break that resistance level and go higher. Um, there 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 is a part of me that thinks they 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 will partially because um, I I do think we're in a normalization process that uh, is going to take time to work through and that we might have to have higher bond yields as we do this. Um, but uh, you know it's I also think that you know the great thing about bonds is that. You know, if you pick good companies or, you know, uh, credit worthy countries, you can hold them until uh, they mature. And the only thing that you've lost is some additional yield that you could have picked up if they have gone higher. The, the problem with bonds comes when, you know, the, the yields go up, the prices fall and you have to sell before they uh, mature. Um, and so, it, you know, if you can own individual bonds and you're, you don't need the money for, for 10 years, um, you know, it's probably not the the worst thing to have there, but you just do have to plan on holding them for for the entire uh, the, the entire length, as opposed to treasuries, which you can roll over the the short term T notes. All right, we have a question from Giuseppe. Do you think that the AI revolution could have a similar impact as the internet revolution? Um, I do. I mean, I think that actually is one of the hopes for the the U.S. economy is that you do end up with um, AI providing a helping to provide a, a productivity boost um, in, in a similar way that the internet did, um, and that that kind of productivity boost can then boost overall growth and um, 
you know that 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 growth can then help the the U.S. get through this, you know, the debt that it has and that kind of thing. There, there's a, a good reason that uh, I think the last time the U.S. really had a balanced budget was uh, back uh, during the internet bubble, just because uh, it, it did make a huge uh, a huge difference. Um, again, I'm just uh, I'm not up on it enough to know how likely that is to happen um it's it's something i need to to dig into more um but i think it is a a, a possibility and i know that uh matt peterson um does some of our commentary work has been exploring it uh, and he has some good stories to read if i remember correctly well if ai can return us to a balanced budget it's truly a miracle <laughs> that is the truth i'm not sure we're ever going to get there again are we no no. All right. Question from Molina. Looking ahead at the impact of monetary policy, do rising rates really have a chance at getting inflation under control? She notes that it's been rough so far and wonders whether a pause or even a rate reduction would be like a double hit to financial markets since we'd be back in the same boat again, presumably with higher inflation and then lower stock prices. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the risk here. Um, I mean, higher rates do um, do they they slow down the economy, and that means that they should slow down inflation as well. Um, it just takes time. Um, I think it takes time, especially when you've had kind of the double whammy of fiscal and monetary policy that we had uh, during the COVID years. Um, There's so much uh, money being handed out to people, um, super easy monetary policy that stayed easy for too long. Um, it takes a while for that to come down. Um, and uh, but, I, but that is the risk is that uh, the the Fed thinks inflation's under control and it stops raising rates or it cuts them and inflation turns out just to have been resting and, and issues higher again. And that's where you start getting into the big problems. And that's, uh, I think, why, Lauren, as you said, Powell's being very careful here. He's being, he says he's data dependent, and I think he is. I think, uh, you know, he wants to see a number of the, he wants to see the trend continue lower. He wants to see signs that, uh, again, I'll use the word normal, though who knows what that is, but that we're going back to a more normal uh, environment when it comes to inflation. And if not, we have AI to bail us out, right? If we can hope. <laughs> right. All right. Last question I will pose from Kenneth. He asks about the outlook for the XLE. That's the Energy Select Sector Spider. And this gives us a quick chance, Ben, to talk about oil prices. Yeah. Oil prices, uh, you know, they have, they, they had come in a lot. Um, and now they are rising. They've risen back to the top of their, of the range that they've been in. Um, and that's partially, I, I think, just due to, you know, some of this is just trading gyrations. OPEC is trying to, um, you know, Saudi Arabia in particular is trying to keep production down to support prices. Um, and then you have all these concerns about uh, um, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, especially with Ukraine now attacking uh, some Russian uh, shipping vessels. Um, you know, if, if Russia stops being able to ship commodities, including uh, oil, um, you have a problem. Um, I, th I think with uh, with energy stocks in particular, that uh, you know they are, um, you know, they they, they move. A, basically with oil prices. And if you put their charts on top of each other, they look kind of the same. The, the good news though, is that um, you do have energy stocks, which most of them are much more conscious about how they're spending money. They're not just pro uh, producing to produce, they're not drilling to drill, um, but they're concentrating on shareholder returns. And I think as long as they do that, 
they're a pretty good place to invest because I wouldn't be surprised if we do see uh, upward pressure on commodities generally um, and oil uh, in particular, and that would be good for these stocks. And in the meantime, they are they're better off than they they're better companies than they were five years ago. For sure. I'm glad we got around to talking about that. Since we've been talking, Ben, the market is up, the Dow is even higher, and the NASDAQ is back in the black. So make of that what you will, but it's looking better on Wall Street. Today. Well, remember, this is how it looked on Friday uh, until <laughs> the very end of the day. So, yeah, yeah, that happens. was quite a reversal on Friday. Anyway, thanks for joining me today, and thanks, as always, for your good comments and wonderful insights. And thanks to our listeners as well. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Lauren Foster, our senior writer, will speak with Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. They'll be discussing the appeal of active management in fixed income, the rise of active bond ETFs, and recent bond fund launches. So today's stocks and a bit of bonds. Tomorrow it's all bonds. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day.